Welcome to The Golden Shadow, the podcast about psychology, philosophy, myth, mysticism, and mystery. My name is Aaron Rogerson. And I'm Alyssa Polizzi. Today we're talking about archetypes. Many of us are familiar with the idea of archetypes, but as usual, it's a more complicated concept than we might realize. But in the simplest terms, how might we define archetypes? Archetypes are psychological organizing principles of our experience. So we can think about them as providing us with sort of instinctual framework for our behavior, our thoughts, um, really refers to this way that we process information hmm. and organize life experience. Right. So the way that we take in everything that's happening to us, the way that we take in our experiences, the way we take in our surroundings, mm-hmm. all the information that we're encountering as we navigate through our life, we are we are organizing that information into meaning in some sense. We're making sense of our surroundings. Yeah. And to do that, we need some sort of architecture of psychology like where do we place this information how do we package this information and that might be in terms of the objects of experience Mm -hmm. um we recognize people as people we recognize trees as trees in some sense this is very low down as far as how we talk about archetypes it's it's sort of the nature of our psychology in some sense the way we organize our psychology the building blocks the framework so this is a big concept. This is a conversation pretty much about psychology and how it works in its entirety. But most people know archetypes in some sense as referring to patterns of stories Mm -hmm. in some sense, which are really like a reflection of the archetypal world. Yeah. We can think that there is sort of this um, kind of layered hierarchy of experience and really at the top of that is the actual archetypal framework the structure itself and what we interact with and what we materialize out of that is the representations the manifestations of that archetypal pattern Um, and that's often what we tend to characterize in um, mythology or motifs and stories these dynamics that feel um, archetypal to us, like the 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 hero's journey, or the wise old man, or the benevolent king. We go, yo, yeah, those are archetypes, but actually, those are archetypal images. Mm-hmm. So we're we're familiar with this notion. Most people who are familiar with Carl Jung, definitely people mm-hmm. who think about um, mythology, people who are fans of pop culture, even right. There's a recogn- a, a recognition of formula mm, yes formulae maybe people mm. understand that movies specifically have a formula to them yeah that is in some sense um varied mm-hmm. over and over again in infinite ways the hero's journey is is the most obvious well most well-known example of this but there's a formula and you can vary that formula quite a bit in the details while maintaining the core structure of it mm-hmm. And that core structure, in some sense, is an expression of an archetype. So we have Star Wars, we have Harry Potter, we have The Hobbit. Um, Any famous hero's journey story, um, we know that the details are different. We know that Luke and Harry are not the same person exactly. They have different backgrounds. They have different personalities, even in some regard. They have different arcs to their story and yet they're both they both have a pattern of 
the adventure that is tapping into something that is formulaic. Right. And that that is a evidence that there is something in our psychology. Yeah. Something um, at the foundation of our psychology yes. that, that that dictates that we like this story in some sense. And that it's shared. Mm. That's the big part of it too, right. is that this pattern, this framework seems to appear across culture and really across time because we see it now in modern day, but we also see it appearing in stories um, from from earlier generations and ancient times. And so those dynamics that we're interacting with um, – having that sort of primordial nature to it um, and sort of belonging to the collective, which is to say that it's, it's, it's just inherently human. When you're born, you are born with the archetypes in their framework. Right, right. So the archetype is something that's inherited. Yes. The same way that you're the morphology of your body, um, the genetics mm-hmm. that we readily recognize um, we all have a structure to our bodies that's inherited from our parents. Mm-hmm. You have your parents' eyes. You have your parents' nose. Let's say we all have noses. We all have eyes. Most of us have five fingers on each hand, five fingers on each, sorry, five toes on each foot. This is all inherited mm-hmm. physiological traits. The mind is no different. Yes. That, the, yes. that we are inheriting archetypes in some sense as, as a structure of psychology. Yeah. And the, the archetypes that we inherit allow for the potential of the characters and motifs, the stories, the the fiction, all these manifestations that we have in our culture. The the archetypes allow for that. But the actual character itself, Harry Potter, for instance, is not the archetype because Harry Potter's not inherited. Right. We didn't inherit Harry Potter no. like in our mind. Though we did inherit like the culture in some sense. So that's that's an important distinction is that the, the, the archetype is inherited because the structure of our psychology, the structure of our mind is inherited. And that allows for the creation of all these characters and stories and motifs. Yeah, exactly. And it's what kind of seems to connect us to some sort of shared experience so that we start to build up collectively culture and dynamics of society um, from that we build religion and um, spiritual practice and dramas and mythology and and even in more simple terms, uh, ways of approaching the world that seem more fundamental and more basic in nature, sort of trans- transcending that sort of um, mythological feel to more mundane aspects as well. So if we try some examples, let's say we're going to consider the father mm-hmm. as let's say an archetype, yes. e- even though it's, it's more complicated than saying the father is an archetype that we're, we're tapping into something much more primordial and deep. Right. That's beyond the father. Yeah. But still we can approach the, 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 the concept of the father and say, what's the archetype here? Right. And we can think about the archetype of the father as representing these principles of, um, authority, leadership, knowledge, organization, some sort of, um, figure that maintains order Mm -hmm. and then that manifests into the image of the benevolent king or your father like your personal father or a father figure Mm -hmm. um religious leaders things like that just people who inherently pull those associations into them naturally from us but the the benevolent king or the religious leader even your father is not the archetype itself but they hold 
the pattern of experience inside of them. Right. So the father, we, we can think of that as being an expression of some sort of archetypal niche or the archetype as a, an anchor almost for our psychology or an anchor for our experience or a, a core which has an orbit mm. for which we place our experiences. Yes. And in, in the sense that um, we're born with this archetypal void or archetypal hole in some sense that is going to be filled Mm -hmm. by a father figure or that we're going to recognize other people as being fatherly Mm -hmm. or we're going to recognize it in stories as the king and the king in some sense is occupying a father role or the the mentor in the story might have some sort of fatherly aspect of it there's also just literally the father in father sorry in in the hero's journey there's often a father character who's killed let's say or something like that Mm -hmm. Um, but deities often have a fatherly aspect. Yeah. Even, you might even say the Christian God is God, the father right, and is, right. is in some sense playing off of this archetypal niche that we have in our psychology for a figure of, like you said, authority or rules or structure mm-hmm. or judgment, but right. also like love, yes. like a combination of all these yes. things that are very fatherly. Right. Um, and, if someone is born without a father, for instance, you can understand why this is difficult yeah. for a child and yeah. leads to a lot of struggle with yeah, life. psychological issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, the child's looking for a father. Right, yeah. Yeah. So that speaks to this underlying collective universal thing that we all have, which is the, the father, the archetype. Yeah. Something, something foundational to our mind, to our experience. Um, by which we organize information in some way. Yeah, and I think looking at family dynamics especially is a really um, good way to to get a grasp because the father and the mother and if there are any siblings, the sort of family as a whole is so um, initially um, experiential for us. (laughs) Like when we're born, those are the first people that we know there that we interact with. And before you can consciously really know who they are, there is an instinctual connection to them. The child inherently, um, connects to the mother figure or to the father figure and a, an interplay, this sort of, uh, reciprocity begins where the mother is sort of enacting certain patterns towards the child and the child, right, because the child is also archetypal. Yes, yes, right. yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. So that is like the, 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 one of the first manifestations of it. So if you're wanting personally to, to understand this dynamic of archetype better, really begin to look at the associations, um, in your own family, mm-hmm father, mother, siblings, um, grandparents even, I think can be very powerful figures in that way too. And seeing that uh, personal experience and then maybe starting to push past that initial personal uh, layer and starting to think about the collective experience of what the archetype represents, what the archetype of the mother is um, um, for all people throughout mythology mm-hmm. Um throughout history what that type of individual has come to represent for us and it can help you to see why we might have certain expectations of our parents especially 
um, why we might feel disillusioned when we realize how very human our parents can be, that they can make mistakes, that they can cause traumas, things mm-hmm. like that. Um, it kind of uh, brings in the very human personal element with that um, powerful archetypal um, association that we naturally have to them. So let's try maybe a more abstract example of an archetype. Not too abstract, but <laughs> let's, let's consider the the notion of a thief. Okay. Let's say a thief is is a character sometimes that we see in mythology, in our stories, mm-hmm. in our movies. Mm-hmm. A character that is sneaky, maybe. Yeah. A character who um, could be viewed very negatively mm-hmm. as a thief. Yeah. Someone who's not playing by the rules. Right. Someone who is taking advantage of others. Yeah. It could be a character that we actually find to be virtuous in some sense like robin hood is in some sense a thief um but we might take this as an example of an archetype that's not so obvious as the father or the mother those Mm -hmm. those are big archetypes right because they're so foundational to everyone's experience but the thief as a reflection of something that we instinctually recognize in people in groups of people we have a notion of rules. We have a notion of fairness that is very deeply ingrained in us. And so this kind of embodiment of someone who is being unfair or who is robbing the fruits of someone else's labor mm. in some regard is also an archetype or a more accurately an expression of some sort of archetypal pattern to our psychology the recognition that there is a fairness to our social groups and that there is someone who can break that that rule in Mm. some regard and that's how we see it in stories perhaps so perhaps robin hood is archetypally a thief but also archetypally a hero and there's sort of an interplay between those two things oh yeah breaking the rules but doing so because the rules are not good to begin with and stealing from the rich because the rich should be stolen from in some regard Mm -hmm. there's kind of the need for that archetypal nature to sort of turn the the uh the usual framework on its head in Mm -hmm. some way or to kind of come out on top to use this sort of um underhanded techniques or as you said to steal from the rich um and i think What's really at play there usually is some sort of like balancing of the scales Mm. in some ways. Mm. I mean, it really depends on the story itself. But um, when an individual is maybe up against incredible odds, that sort of um, different um, attitude or behavior that one might associate with that sort of um, devious thief-like quality, um, the trickery in mm. a way also might be what helps um, bring in more inherent balance and harmony to the, the situation. Sure. And there's a, there's an aspect of this scene in um, role-playing games, video mm-hmm. games. There's mm-hmm. a, a character you can choose to be, which is the thief character in some yeah. sense. And some people might like the idea of the identity that they have as mm-hmm. someone who is sneaky and behind the scenes right. and maybe not the most obvious or maybe not the leader maybe not the person who's out in front and in the spotlight but someone who's in the shadows right there's sort of a tapping into some aspect of our psychology of there's something appealing about 
the person who goes a different path or goes their own way. Right. And I think that that also just shows that the, the varied possibilities of navigating life in a way that is still, um, kind of like in line with the nature of, of doing well or doing what, um, the, the, the typical hero might do, but just in a different capacity allows for a, um, it's just sort of like multitude of experience for one to not be so stuck in a stereotype, like the hero with the big sword, who's always out in front and, and, and saves the day by charging in and, you know, beating on his chest and everyone knows, you know, there's, there's different ways to interact with the environment and calling upon different skill sets and playing up to certain people's inherent nature, even that still provides a sense of, um, of, of good news, goodness or virtue, um, or at least a, a continuation of the story in a way that is positive. Um, and you can even sometimes see in certain hero stories that the hero themselves might wear many of those different hats. Maybe they are sometimes the very obvious, glorious, virtuous hero, but other times they might be a little bit more trickstery or thief-like. And you mm. might think, well, that's not very fair or that's not... Um, a good attitude to take or something like that, but yeah. it serves a, a, an important purpose and sort of shows also, I think the, the very human dynamic of, of individuals that we right. sometimes need to dip into our tool belt. Right. The great, the great variation yeah. in our identities, right. the, the potential for yeah. so much variation. Yes. So uh, something that's important to illustrate is that characters and motifs are not the only expression of archetypes there there are well, archetypes you could apply this to really any aspect of experience at all but um you could think of stories as being archetypal obviously the, the hero's journey is an archetypal story we've already mm -hmm. talked about that and that's that's not necessarily just the hero as a character the story itself is archetypal the pattern itself is archetypal the the hobbit is an archetypal hero's journey story and it distills this pattern, this aspect of our, of our psychology very effectively into the story of Bilbo. Um, you could say Lord of the Rings in some sense is archetypal in a different way than The Hobbit. It's there's something about it. It's, it's, it's aesthetic. The more epic structure, um, the more like the world is at stake aspect of Lord of the Rings is something that we see that's been copied over and over again is the great epic fantasy adventure. Yeah. Um, and these are all tapping into formulaic aspects of our psychology, distilling those aspects of our psychology, um, manifesting these patterns that are collective, that are universal, that we recognize in some sense. And another example might be um, pop music, right? Yeah. Like the, the Beatles as a band there's something about the archetype of the band that's like tapping into something deeper. Yeah. We see this sort of like group identity coming together with this formulation of the band and everyone's sort of playing their roles. Like we can even see it, um, you know, on a sports team or in a, a band of heroes in a superhero movie. Like there's something about a group of powerful individuals who are, who are sort of tapped into their own, 
um, mastery or their own skill set that we find very valuable. Um, so we have with the example of exploring the archetypal nature of music and this emergence of rock and roll and pop as this um, recognition collectively of something that is very inherent, that it took the world by storm, that each of the Beatles and maybe arguably some of them more than others became like gods in a way, mm. right? Like we're like the incredible songwriting of, um, of John and Paul and the guitar playing of George and, and Ringo who kept it all together. Right, yeah. um, they all play this role and there's something inherent initially just to them as individuals, but then what they brought forward to us psychologically through sound through music that we can think about now that we're experiencing archetypal nature through through music. Right, right. So they, they discovered something that was hiding all along yeah. in some regard, and they did it incredibly well. But the band as a phenomenon is something that's incredibly popular yes. and has become incredibly popular. And I don't think that could have been predicted. I don't think people could have understood that. But there, there's something about... Uh, these four dudes, maybe, mm -hmm. maybe five of them, and they're rebellious and they're doing things that make the older generation like wag their finger. Right. They're growing their hair too long. Yeah. Um, the music is too energetic. Right. They're breaking the rules. They're kind of thief-like, right? They're in a tr trickstery in a way. Definitely. And they're certainly heroes mm -hmm. to all of those kids who right. loved them. Um, right. There's something very sexual about it too. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. Um, not always, but in, in the case of the Beatles, in the case of rock and roll bands, there's definitely a sort of youthful rebelliousness, uh, sort of, um, hot young people breaking the rules that is tapping into something that's very archetypal for us. Mm -hmm. And that's very interesting. And then the, that's combined with all these other aspects of what we consider to be pop music. It's, it's not just the music but it is the music. I mean, there's the, the, the yeah. pop song is archetypal. Right. It's been distilled into a format. It has a formula yeah. that is verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, chorus, for instance. Um, and that's been copied over and over and over again into literally like millions of songs. Yeah. And, and it works for us. We, we want to hear it over and over in mm -hmm. all of these variations because it hits something very true. Yeah. And, and that sort of longevity that, that, that everlasting sort of quality to it is is very sort of um, inherent. That sort of waves the flag, like okay, archetypal pattern framework happening here. Exactly. It's like you can't you can't deny that it's tapping into something that is a thing, an archetype. Yeah. It's the song is something you can't deny that. And if you, you know, the people experiment. There's experimental music, of course, and there's like you know like hardcore music where the, the song is maybe like thirty seconds long. And there's music where it tries that tries to do a song that's like ten minutes long, for instance. But you find like like it just doesn't really seem to work as well. It's like well, and I think it it will work to a degree for some people. But will that ever take hold of the world? Will it grip them? Will it be on right. everybody's like iPhone mm -hmm. playing on Spotify? Millions of views on YouTube. Right. Probably not. So it's not to say that you know variation on music and genre and song style doesn't have its place it certainly does certainly but there's something very distilled at the core right, there right right three and a half minutes long mm -hmm. um 
again, having a chorus that repeats so yeah, people know right. that it's people, coming up again. When the chorus is coming, everyone's like, ooh, like they get kind of like, right. you know, there's excited. A, there's a rising in energy yeah. and then a fall of energy yeah. and there's like a climax and then you kind of end the song a certain way. And it's, it doesn't mean that the format can't be messed with. And obviously there have been very famous songs that have been seven minutes long mm-hmm. and that can work, but still you're seeing a sort of a, um, again, a core thing in which different representations are orbiting right. this thing. Right. It's organizing yeah. around this core archetype, this this formula, mm-hmm. and that's the pop song yeah. in some sense is orbiting this this thing. Um, and again, if you keep going with the Beatles, like it's also their personalities. It's it's the image. There's right. all these archetypal things happening yeah, in one package. It's important to talk about the 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 human element of it outside of like the the pop song framework because mm-hmm. i think that's especially why it was so powerful mm-hmm. it's like not only did they sort of launch this rock and roll sort of pop um evolution but they themselves also were sort of harnessing you know unconsciously um this this archetypal power inside of themselves mm-hmm. especially that each of them had kind of their own dynamic personality but as a group as a whole they kind of represented uh, something that people could grasp onto, like the rebellious nature and all mm-hmm. of that. And so it shows the varying dynamics that are going on when um, a situation is drawing a lot of um, sort of archetypal power to it. Right. That it's You can actually just kind of break it down and look at the, the archetype in each of those individuals and them as a group and the songs themselves. And I think that's why they were like literally a phenomena. Like mm. <laughs> it's kind of all um, tied up into that experience. Right, right. And so this, this energy that we're talking about in which uh, the archetypal quality of something can be harnessed and capitalized upon in some sense that blows it up into such extreme proportions mm-hmm. that you have things like the ba- the Beatles, like right. a super group. You have celebrities. Right. You have politicians, people that have aggregated all this attention, all this energy that people are readily throwing at them right. in a way that we don't really question too much, but there's there's like these celebrity magazines what is that? Right. Like, why Why does anyone care what these celebrities are doing in their free time? Like, why is that a thing? Right. A you lot might, of people care. And a lot of people <laughs> care. And you have to ask, what is that? What's happening? Right. Why are people throwing this energy at these celebrities? Yeah, and the more attention they get, the more attention they keep aggregating. And it yes, kind of snowballs in yes, this weird way. Yeah. There is this tendency to sort of find something that feels almost bigger than ourselves sometimes, I feel. Because we even look at the celebrity as, you know, not not literally like a like god in a, in a spiritual sense but in many ways they are they have been raised up onto this pedestal right i mean the celebrity and a deity i think are tapping into the same archetype <laughs> yeah you yeah know? and the, the the archetype is not god right i think a god is a reflection of mm, the archetype the yeah. same way the celebrity is but there, right. there's something about raising a human-like yeah. thing up and that might be playing on um our tendency to want to pick a leader or to recognize a leader or to um, be conscious of power or status in some sense, even just from an evolutionary perspective. I think you can draw that back and say, clearly humans are tribal. Clearly humans recognize the need for a tribal leader. Mm -hmm. That's instinctual. If you blow that out of proportion, 
you get celebrities or you get um, a god or something like that. And often, you know, even at the degree of which it's religious and spiritual in in nature, um, like an established sort of religious god to like a celebrity, in many ways they sort of inform you uh, through their way of living how you should be too, Mm -hmm. right? Like people follow the trends of celebrities as yeah. if like their word is like the word of God. It's like, mm. wow, this celebrity is doing this now. Right. Um, like you see that phenomena. That is why they are um, the faces of advertisements for products. You know, it's like, mm. oh, I, for some reason, deeply respect and believe in this image of this person, like Brad Pitt. And he's on right. uh, the Coca-Cola commercial. Okay. Yes. Yep. I want Coca-Cola. Right. And that's, and that's, that's not like a real conversation that someone's having with themselves. Right. Oh, it's no. just totally unconscious. Yes. But you, you see Brad Pitt and you're like, oh, and then you want to drink the soda in right. a way that like, you're not making that rational connection. Right. It just happens. And so again, that's archetypal. Yes, that's yes. tapping into an underlying foundational structure right. of our psychology. It's helping you navigate the world. Right, right. So the, again, this notion of the like the archetypal niche or the, the archetypal void, mm-hmm. and the way that we kind of want to put things into those niches, and yeah. there is a niche for someone who is powerful or someone who is a leader or someone who we want to follow and get behind. Yeah. Clearly we do this. Yeah. Instinctually. Yeah. Like clearly. If you, if, if you don't notice this, then you're not really paying attention, I think. Um, and just to be clear to our listeners, the Christian God is not just a celebrity. I want to want to be clear on that. It's, it's far more complicated than that. Right. The notion, something that might be closer to that is the notion of just a deity or like a, I think like ancient like Greek gods or something like that might be a little bit closer to this notion of the deity. And the, the, the Christian God is something that's far, far more complicated than just celebrity power, I would say, yeah. just to be clear. But we can get into that in a different podcast. Yeah. Of course. Um, so what we're talking about here, this, this archetypal energy that people are throwing at things, this can become perverted, right? Yeah. Yeah. Right. And yeah. um, you might even say that the, the mother archetype might be a good example of a, a something archetypal that we are throwing energy at mm-hmm. instinctually, mm-hmm. not necessarily in a bad way, but right. like we, the mother is important to us. A lot of investment is going in mom. There's all this meaning behind mom and that can become something can break. Something can become perverted or broken yeah. and corrupted in that. And that's why we see this universal collective experience of people having problems with their parents, for instance. Right. Um, well, mother is only human and in many ways she's holding the projection of the archetypal, um, framework upon her. So in an example where your mother may have done something wounding to you in childhood, and that starts to really like break down the, um, the sort of unconscious um, belief system that you had around that individual, it can be incredibly difficult um, and can sort of lead to that um, that archetype becoming um, sort of associated with painful, difficult um, feelings and mm. emotions and memories. And so in a way, you might then approach m- mothering in general to become a mother yourself maybe one day or mother-like figures as something that you want to stay away from. That mm. archetype 
um, has taken on a sort of perversion due to that um, like kind of personal flavor of what's been attached to right, it. Right. And that's you just you just brought up sort of an interesting aspect of this of the notion that the mother is a powerful archetype to us in the terms that we have a relationship with our own mother. Yeah. But we also become the mother yeah. at some point, and that's an interesting aspect to the notion of the archetype is ascending in some sense into a thing that was outside of you as a child and yeah. very powerful, but you are becoming that thing. And that's interesting. Mm. The ways in which that can affect you, the ways in which that can create a pattern in your life well it can also be i think healing to the the connection to the the mothering like the original mothering relationship in in if in this situation someone had a difficult childhood and a difficult relationship with the mother later on becoming a mother or entering into a relationship where you have a child and watch your partner be a mother could Mm. actually be something that helps sort of um Retie those broken bonds for mm-hmm. you, mm-hmm. or at least sort of gives it some new um, energy and um, new associations to sort of feel that the uh, the dark sort of negative associations that you had beforehand are are slipping away. So we're tapping into this notion of complexes, and I think we, I think we can get into that. I think we have sure. enough time to get into yeah. that. So. Archetypes, in some sense, are speaking to a organizing principle of our experience. We, we are processing our experience and placing it into packages or compartments, in some sense. That's not the best analogy, but yeah. um, we're organizing our experience, our memories, our interpretations, all these meanings that we encounter in our life. We're organizing those into the sort of building blocks of the individual. Yeah, yeah. And that is referred to as a complex. Yeah, we're, we're starting to get into, um, you know, more of the Jungian framework. And complexes, I think, is actually um, a word that's in the general lexicon, but has um, maybe only a one-sided connotation to it. Because mm. I think people hear complex and they're just like, ooh. Right, Oedipus complex. Yes, you know, inferiority complex. Inferiority complex, You yeah. know, we have these negative associations to it, but the idea of complexes um, was something that Jung really discovered when he was doing um, these word association tests back um, in his early career mm. and started to realize that when sort of giving people these random words, boat, tree, car, red, suddenly people seem to have these really strange reactions to certain words. Mm. So you might be like cat, um, tree, food, mother, and then the the person might in their reaction be slowed. Maybe they, um, the word that they said back to them was like pain or something. He started to notice these patterns around um, seemingly simple words. And what he built around that was this idea that complexes are... um, these core sort of fundamental pieces of our psychology that have a lot of associations with them, um, experiences, feeling, toned, um, sort of emotional dynamics, but matched with that personal dynamic is an archetypal core. Right. So the, the complex in some sense provides the nurture to the archetypes yes. nature. Yes. And what I mean by that is if we can think of the archetype as a structure of our psychology that's sort of built in. Um, complexes are 
the the information, the experience that we put into orbit around those archetypes. Yeah. So if the, if the archetype is this core structural component, like a skeleton maybe, mm-hmm. the, the complexes are the individual building up of that skeleton into yeah. a more fleshed out body. Yeah. And those, those become these building blocks that we create over our lifetime, and that is what makes up the individual. Yeah. So the mother archetype has a mother complex. We all have a mother complex. Mm. And that's not to say that we all have a negative mother complex. It's neutral. It's neutral until we start to have experiences. So that sort of twofold nucleus, part one being archetypal, part two being um, the nurturance, the, the personal experience starts to draw um, aspects to it. So when I was born, my mother cared for me. That's drawn to the mother complex. Hmm. My mother um, introduced me to my favorite band. That's drawn to it. My hmm. mother taught me how to read. Right. My mother always cared for me when I was sick or my mother um, neglected me. That starts to turn that complex into something a little bit darker in nature. And so that um, brings us into the understanding of how the archetype um, anchors um, the personal experience and as we live our life, we make all these associations um, and they kind of constellate together. Right. They, they draw in to that orbit mm. and create, you know, more and more powerful association for our life and what it means when we hear the word mother. Right. And if we had a, a good, powerful mothering experience, you know, you might say mother and my word association might be love, but maybe I had a negative experience and it might be pain. Um so that's right. kind of where we start to explore that. Right. And you have you have a mother complex whether or not you had a mother. Yes. Let's say. Yes. And if, if you are someone who very unfortunately grew up without a mother, yeah. let's say, that doesn't mean you don't have a mother complex because yeah. because the archetype is there no matter what. Yes, it's inherited. It's inherited. You're you're born with again this this archetypal niche. Mm-hmm. Um and you're going to readily fill that with a mother figure. Right which is hopefully your mom is yeah. around. And if your mom's not around, that niche is still going to be there. Right. And that's going to be a void. Yeah. And it might be filled with other things that are trying to compensate yes. for the mother. Yes. Uh, there might be just, just be the feeling of emptiness or yes. um, a lack. A lack, yeah. In some sense. So this, so this notion that the, the archetype is this compartment by which we organize our experience and it's there no matter what. Yeah. Um, and that really this idea is complicated and you know, it's not perfect. Obviously. I mean, again, we're describing something that is incredibly complex and the archetype, the notion of the archetype, the notion of the complexes is in some sense a metaphor. It's not perfect. It's not totally scientific, but still, um, you can see this, you can see these patterns, you can recognize this in the way that people behave and the way that they carry out their lives is that we do have a collective universal experience in life Mm -hmm. and we all have, the same patterns in life there's there's all these there's a reason there's um stories about all these aspects of growing up of um you know coming of age right of right. first kiss mm-hmm. of um first time you fell in love first time your heart was broken first yeah. time that uh you had a child there's all these experiences that are universal to humans um 
and you can see this and that's 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 where this notion of archetype comes from it's where this notion of complex comes from is that you are building up a temple that is your life that is you as individual and the bricks you are using are complexes experiences and those bricks are organized around archetypes they're the structure and you use that to build up your existence Mm -hmm. all right so i've got a deck of cards with all different archetypes on it and archetype cards archetype cards carolyn miss um so we are going to draw them at random and talk a little bit about them okay go ahead i'm going to pull an archetype card here we go i pulled the servant the servant all right Alyssa, what's the servant well someone who's definitely um giving to others supporting others immediately the the association I'm thinking of servant is one in which there's certainly like a power dynamic happening. Yeah, um, that's what serve. Yeah. Is. Um, and, and I think that we naturally step into that role because we want to serve others in our life, both out of like love and compassion. Um, like certainly like um, uh, parents serve their children. Sure. Um, yeah. I mean, a lot of people get a lot of joy out of being useful to other right, people right. and helping other people right. and making other people happy and comfortable. It feels good in our nature to provide and nurture or to take on. I think that's part of also what I kind of feel with like the servant. It's like you're taking on some sort of weight. It's not necessarily something that um, has to be totally um, heavy in nature, but often there's that feeling that you are um, kind of doing something for another and that might inherently lighten their load mm-hmm. to a degree definitely that's part of the uh the core of love is in some sense giving yourself away yeah to someone else and not being paid in return for it yeah and yeah yeah an aspect of the servant that I, I think all of us have a deep capacity to serve yes but it can become again perverted yes or corrupted or right. there can be a shadow side of that yeah. in some sense where um someone thinks they are being altruistic right. when in fact they are just doing it for their own benefit or they're just manipulating someone or right. they, they want to think of themselves as being a good person like mm-hmm. oh see i serve others mm-hmm. when in reality you're not serving others yeah um and so there's there's potential around this archetype for all this variation of how you might manifest your interactions with other people yeah um and how it can be such a powerful tool for good and for joy in your life Mm -hmm. and it can also be something we recognize in individuals as being in some sense kind of broken or warped yeah yeah okay all right let's pull another one Hmm. the lover the lover well this one's pretty prominent (laughs) in our culture there's definitely a lot of a lot of meaning and power behind that notion the lover um well Obviously, all of us have a huge capacity for loving. Yeah. You might say it defines our entire existence in some sense as being someone that's capable of love. Yeah. Um, it is, I would say, usually the main reason why people do what they do in life. 
is right. out of love. Right. Uh, they're pursuing love. Um, people find the most meaning out of love. Um, people feel very, very messed up when they don't receive love. Yeah. And if they, if, um, someone is incapable of loving, we definitely recognize that as being like a very serious vice. Mm. Um, but there's also the sexual aspect of this. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Um, way, I would say it's pretty hard to d- separate sex and love. Yeah. Um, we do separate it in our culture nowadays, but I, I would say archetypally sex and love are tied into one another. Right. Especially when we think about the concept of the lover, my lover, it's like, right. that's not your sibling. Like, right. That's right. Your... So that's, that's what I'm referring to. Yeah. This part. I'm, not, yes. I'm not thinking of it as like brotherly love. Yeah. I'm thinking it as yes. This is romantic, ro- this is romantic love yeah. mm-hmm. that we're dealing with here as mm-hmm. depicted by the picture with her holding a heart and looking very joyous, passionate. Oh, a human heart. A human heart, yes. Mm. <laughs> um, so passion, right? A sort of devotion to another individual that drives a lot of meaning mm. and also um, a um, an important evolutionary uh, function as well, right? To it's the evolutionary yeah. function, reproduction. To reproduce, so, yeah. I don't know if anything is more archetypal than the lover. Yeah, and I think that's also why there can be such a spectrum of uh, complete, like, um, painful and difficult and heart-wrenching experience with the lover because there's so much built into it. And when that becomes toxic in nature or your devotion to it is um, destructive, Mm -hmm. um, it can wreak an incredible amount of havoc on somebody. Yeah, yeah. All right, we're pulling another one. Okay. The damsel. <laughs> the damsel. Okay. How do we think about the damsel? Well, it's very particular. It is because it's inherently um, a feminine-natured um, uh, personality dynamic that we're dealing with here. And one who is... You can think about, oh, they're in distress. Of course, that's very stereotypical. Um, mm-hmm. But the damsel also opens up the opportunity for the masculine psyche to come through and to, um, you know, slay the dragon or, you know, um, overcome some challenge. The the damsel is um, kind of uh, giving us the the initial spark for some sort of more active element inside of us Mm -hmm. to to awaken. So that's where I go initially with that. Right, right. So a, a feminine archetype, it doesn't necessarily have to be um, manifested by a female. Right, Of course, right. in, even in our stories, this could be a role that's taken on by a male. Um, but, a, but a feminine archetype, um, an individual who is open and receptive mm-hmm. to some hero right. or some masculine right. figure to come and join with them yes. to um, merge with them in some sense. You could say it's the um, a state of being before the union mm-hmm. or the marriage in some yes. sense. Yes. And um, the damsel in, you know, the most classic Slay the Dragon Heroes story is someone who is waiting for the masculine energy to come and merge with them to yes. make them more than they were before. Yes, and yes. so the damsel, once she merges with a masculine energy, yes. wakes up. And maybe um, evolves into yes. the mother. Right, right. That that unification principle 
um, inherently requires the the balance of the masculine and the feminine. Mm. And so the damsel is one of those ways in which that story plays out. And right. we can harness within ourselves possibly a more active principle, you know, mm-hmm. um, to to um, to sort of compensate for what the feminine receptivity is opening up for. And that that um, that that joining is where sort of like transformation can happen. Right. And also for the for the masculine Yes. Hero type. It's yes. a, the damsel wakes up the masculine hero. Yes. Like, yes. What what is what is the the hero need? It's like he needs a feminine energy to mm-hmm. make him more than he was before. Yes. And so there, that that merging in that sense, it, it depends, of course. But you could think of the damsel in some sense as a a, a feminine counterpoint to the masculine hero in the mm-hmm. story. Yeah. Or almost the feminine version of the hero in, mm-hmm. at some stage in the journey, mm-hmm. in some regard. And uh, I think it's interesting to think about, like, the shadow aspect of um, a damsel archetype. It might be someone who is waiting for someone to rescue them or, yeah. or yielding their agency right. to someone else to, to take control and dominate them in some sense. Right. The The act of this in its more balanced state is one where the, the two parts, the masculine and the feminine, are meeting on equal ground mm. and power is held sort of reciprocally between the two. So that shadow one certainly talks to some sort of imbalance happening um, where it's it's not really serving the ultimate goal. Cool. Do you have a question for us? Do you have a dream you'd like us to analyze? We want to hear from you. Contact us through the submission form, which can be found at our Instagram page at Golden Shadow Podcast. Or if you're listening on YouTube, you can find the link in the description below. Thanks for listening. See you later. If you find this podcast useful, please consider supporting us on Patreon. These podcasts are only possible with the support of viewers like you. Mm